This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Kirk wants to speak to the manager. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gepwin and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week it's another sequel episode. Yeah. We're getting so, so many like of these. Theme here. Yeah. Well, I guess it's a, it does kind of make sense because, uh, you know, there are the original series did a lot, visit a lot of really kind of weird and unusual worlds. So, you know, there's, there's plenty more to mind from all that. There is, and apparently there there were a lot of plans and talks and partial scripts to do sequel episodes, including this one, before the sh- original show was canceled, so they're just following up with the cartoon. Our, our, our five-year mission is actually continuing. It's, it's really sad to me, because the idea, just like, we had a limited budget, what we could do with special effects in the 60s weren't great, and it limited our ideas. So the world of animation looks worse. <laughs> yeah, there, there is. I have praised before the uh, they're pretty good their backgrounds, but the animate the, the actual movement part of the animation, yeah, it's it's just kind of awful. <laughs> yeah, and then something that I I would I would just love to know. I would love to be able to just ask someone who was involved in the script planning process for these. Was purple pterodactyl something they wanted to put in the original series a lot, but couldn't get the budget for? <laughs> now, I, I will point out that these uh, pterodactyls uh, are, are, are beyond being kind of both frightening and cute. Uh, different than the last sort of pterodactyl thing that we ran into. They are. I just Technically. When we started this, I did not think purple pterodactyls was a thing I was going to have to learn to spell. <laughs> now it's come up twice well uh, well i i suspect there's going to be at least one more which is just insane that that you're gonna say you know what the thing about star trek a lot of purple pterodactyls <laughs> yes <laughs> where are these guys in like the more modern series come on <laughs> also that's surprisingly difficult to say when you repeat it too much so i'm gonna stop so uh here's a trick to, to be able to not say it at all Put the front of your tongue at the top of your mouth, and then try to pronounce it. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, 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 let's not do that, actually. Anyway. <laughs> I have a trick. Just close your mouth. End of step. <laughs> Don't go. make noise. So do we have any uh, guest uh, people this week? Not that I could find. Everyone is I voiced by normal people from the cast doing accents. Writers? We did have writers, uh, so I should mention, this episode is called Once Upon a Planet. Wrap your head around that. Yep. (laughs) So as opposed to a time, it's a place. It is the canonical sequel to Shore Leave, where they go to the pleasure world. Get into that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was written by what was apparently a cheap animation dream team. (laughs) Uh, Chuck Menville and Len Jackson, who... Started separate careers at different companies. Uh, Menville worked on a lot of animated shows like The Smurfs and The Real Ghostbusters and would also do another episode here called Practical Joker. Mm -hmm. 
Jason started working as an animator at Disney and then started doing short cartoons. And he and Menville became like an animation writing powerhouse in the 60s and 70s, working for uh, Funmation, which is what we have here, and also uh, Hanna-Barbera and a lot of other children's cartoons that you have heard of from this era. So, so you know, you got the new adventures of Batman... Uh, all the way up through Tiny Toons and uh, then Batman the Animated Series. Yeah, so it's it's one of those... <laughs> it's These are some of those people. Every now and then you hit people who are like, I had not heard of them, but they had a larger-than-average influence on my childhood. Indeed. <laughs> they were the secret creators of all your media. People who know what they're doing with animation writing wrote this episode. Yep. <laughs> Which I think does show a little. Yeah, because there is like... Things that are, like, trying to be animated. I'm sure that the script seemed like stuff was going to move quite a lot. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, this is Star Trek the Animated Series. Yep. Cheap <laughs> is the name of the game. <laughs> there might have been another instance of, like, someone talking and their, their mouths are not moving as well. So. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> At least and that. The, the seatbelts. They reused the magic mustache transporter. Yes. <laughs> so the Enterprise crew is in dire need of some R&R and is returning to the shore leave planet. They're, they're calling it that now. Last seen in the original series episode, Shore Leave. <laughs> well, it's like, what do we do there? Uh, we went on shore leave. So let's just call it that because yeah. they don't have a name for it. McCoy, Sulu, and Uhura beam down to the planet and McCoy explains the basic premise of the previous episode. Yeah, so... Uh... Let's make sure everyone's up to speed so no one's confused and why there's a white rabbit over there. Yeah. Similarly, anyone who missed our previous episode doesn't feel like going back or watching this one. This is a planet built by some sort of super ancient, super advanced alien civilization that has a bunch of underground factories that makes robots based on anything you think of. And these robots are like, I guess, sort of plant-like or something like that? It's kind of weird. Yeah, it's very strange. But last time they were here, McCoy saw the white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland and also got killed by something. But as soon as he says that, a white rabbit runs by and Alice from Alice in Wonderland comes by and goes, Hey! What up? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, they send her on her way and uh, it's like, okay, well, that, that was a little strange, but, you know, it's kind of what we expect here because, uh, you know, last time we had, like, multiple, uh, uh, you know, instances with things trying to kill us, attack us, uh, punch us, and um, we got attacked by stock footage. What else do we get attacked by? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly annoy you to death. Yeah. So later on, Ahura is humming by a lake, relaxing. Sulu is somewhere, just around, Hang nebulous up. between yeah. space. Well, remember, Sulu likes plants, so he's checking all the plants again. And McCoy is enjoying an old southern-style palatial mansion with gardens and all. I guess it reminds him of home. I guess. Then he's attacked by the Queen of Hearts and her card soldiers, one of whom throws a spear at him. Michelle Barrett, why are you taking on the, the role of a, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 an old-timey uh, storybook here? She does that. Yeah. <laughs> Happens from time to time. So he runs away, calls for an emergency beam out, and he and Sulu are beamed back to the ship. But Uhura is attacked by a large flying drone thing and taken prisoner before she can be beamed back aboard. Oh, no. Um... They're not very good at beating people back quickly, are they? No. 
Back at the bridge, everyone's a bit confused because McCoy wasn't thinking about the Queen of Hearts when he was attacked, which is supposedly how the computer systems function. Then they notice that Ahura is missing, and uh, Kirk decides that he, Spock, Sulu, and McCoy should go back down to the planet and find her as a rescue team and maybe find the planet's keeper, who's the alien man who's in charge of making the whole thing run. Maybe you should have talked to him first. Yes. Also, you guys are really bad at keeping track of your crew members. Yeah. Everyone beams up. It's like, okay, all good. And they're like, hey, Ahura's not here. Darn. Whoops. <laughs> On the planet, Ahura is being held captive by a large computer. The computer wants to use her to get her Sky Machine Master. Oh, okay. Um, could you speak in a little bit different sort of way that we could actually understand what you mean? No, you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, th thanks a lot, Master Computer. Now we have to be enemies. It was just my favorite. It's like, what's going on? Oh, you're dumber than I thought. <laughs> the computer then notices the away team and since they are superfluous to its needs it decides that it's going to turn them off but not very efficiently yeah it's like well i need to find their off buttons um let's send some things out to try to kill them and then we'll figure it out later <laughs> the kirk and party are looking for the underground complex where all the machinery of the planet is located um he decides that they could try drilling down to it, but then they called up to request equipment. It turns out their communicators are dead and their transporters are jammed. Hmm. Well, uh, it's not like we didn't have weird problems with this sort of thing last time we were here. You could you have know? expected this, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, I know we're supposed to be welcomed back to just sort of hang out and stuff, but, you know, if you don't know that the, 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 uh, the person in charge here is actually still in charge, maybe you should... I don't know. Be a little more cautious and think ahead and about what happened last time. So the now stranded party find a large metal obelisk that turns out to be a gravestone for the keeper who died sometime before they got back. Well, well that sucks. I, I guess they were one of his last visitors. <laughs> Wait this a way moment. they didn't have to hire a guest star. Wait a moment. So the Enterprise crew shows up on this planet. They have their shore leave and then the guy dies. This, these must be related. Oh, yeah, probably. They just go on murder sprees, introduce pathogens, all that junk. Yeah. <laughs> but we're not going to worry about that possible th plot thread. But anyway. If you're coming back to the random planet run by this dude to relax, maybe you should have tried to talk to the dude. I don't understand yep. how they just showed up here unannounced out of nowhere. Well, they know uh, someone lives here. Yeah. It, maybe they were told, like, yeah, don't worry about bothering me directly. I'll just sort of be quietly in the background watching you guys have your fantasies. That, that Don't say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Why you make it creepy? <laughs> well, isn't a pleasure planet like this kind of inherently creepy to a certain extent? Yeah, he just sits down there and watches them and reads their minds. Yep. <laughs> on the ship, Scotty's preparing to send a rescue team with a shuttlecraft, but the hangar doors are on the fritz. Uh, I, was, uh, yeah, I think this is the, the appropriate time to go... <laughs> For like five minutes. Yeah, that's what they do. Yeah. <laughs> Scotty suspects that the planet is screwing with the ship because it was working fine before they got there. And speaking of, the computer is still holding Ahura captive because uh, she tries to escape at least once and it goes, nope, I can read your thoughts as much as I hate doing it because <laughs> I am disillusioned with my job. Oh, 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 I get it. You weren't getting paid enough. Yeah. Wait, you were kind getting paid of. at all. Drat. Um, 
well, that, that kind of sucks. Uh, maybe we should like negotiate the situation and try to s- figure out a solution. Yeah, there's a few times in here when the computer uses some uncomfortable slave allegories. Yeah. Not great. <laughs> so on the surface, Kirk and the rest are lost because it's not like a sign's just going to pop up and point them to where the planet insides are. Spock then notices a sign pointing to where the planet's insides are. Wow, that's wildly convenient. They know it's probably a trap, but they follow it anyway and wind up at the mouth of a cave where they are attacked by a purple parasaur. Ah, ah the dinosaurs, they're here to eat our blood. I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, but you have to have the double P if, you're, if it's purple. <laughs> well, we could also call it uh, pur- uh, purple peep leaders. <laughs> they're trying. They're doing their best. <laughs> they take shelter in a cave, but are now trapped. Even more so when they mention that the planet is playing cat and mouse with them and the, you know, pterosaurs transform into a large cat. Not hey, purple hey. this time, though. Yes, uh, I'm having flashbacks to cat's paw suddenly. You said it's not black either. I guess they were just tired of that. <laughs> well, it's uh, you know, animation, you know, you know, black cats are harder to animate because you just spend so much time with one color and, you know, less details, I guess. Unless That's you're true. Unless you gray or something like that. Uh I'm not sure by this era of animation, but I did hear a while back that the uh, the ink color that they used for black back then didn't photograph well and was hard to use in animation, which is why so many things are blue. I guess that makes sense, yeah. So back on the bridge, they've lost control of the ship and it begins to maneuver itself. Uh, Lieutenant Arex is able to hit the emergency override control, and Scotty examines the program that was entered into the navigational computer and sees that it's a standard test pattern as if something's trying to learn how to control the ship better. Hmm. Well, maybe we should, like, turn off our Wi-Fi. Also, since everyone's (laughs) down on the planet, not not enough of note happens on the ship, but Lieutenant Arex and Lieutenant, um, Merez, Merez, Mess, Merez. There's a there's like a dash in there somewhere. Yes. Yeah. She they get a lot more screen time in this. And indeed. Lieutenant Mress is very uncomfortable to listen to because she adds random oh, purring like, noises to the end of every sentence, no matter how serious the situation. Oh no, we're all gonna die. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the away team's li- vitals are in danger. Mmm. Well, uh, I'm glad you're pleased by this, but could you tone it down a little bit? (laughs) How else would you know she's a cat? (laughs) It's like, oh yeah, there's some stuff happening, but I'm going to be a cat here. Also, I knocked this glass onto the floor. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) On the planet, Spock has begun a plan to gain access to the planet's lower levels. As we all remember from last episode... McCoy got stabbed by a knight and he was taken to a medical facility under the planet where he was cured. Spock thinks that this is just an automated system to maintain life on the planet. So if it looks like someone's got a serious injury, they'll be taken away to be healed. Well, that's a big assumption, but okay. McCoy just so happens to have a magic chemical in his bag that will knock you unconscious for about five minutes and discolors your skin, but is otherwise harmless. Now, I think at this point, it's not just that McCoy magically has these things on him. He carries these around because he's kind of a junkie. Makes sense. Kirk volunteers, but Spock points out that he is the more obvious choice to go because he knows how to work computers and he is stronger and better than people in every way. Uh, there you go. All right, Ed. McCoy injects him and Spock stumbles out of the cave and passes out. 
Uh, hopefully he doesn't get eaten by a giant cat while he's laying down there prone. Yeah, that's something they didn't seem to consider. <laughs> back on the ship, the gravity's given out. Hmm. Hooray! Engineering can't get to computer control to turn it back on. Scotty somehow gets enough leverage to pry open a panel with a crowbar. He's, he's just kind of awesome like that, I guess. I guess zero G something 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 training. <laughs> also, Scotty is the most competent person on the ship, so if anyone's going to know how to do this, it's him. Yep. And inside, he sees that the problem is that their computer is building another computer that looks a lot like the computers on the planet. Hmm. Oh, this is awkward. I didn't know we had a replicator. Actually, their computer's just grown some little arms. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually putting it together. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to put the pieces here. It's great. (laughs) Which I want to know, like, did the planet side computer somehow send up instructions for the computer to be able to build itself arms internally somehow or did they have a computer in there that just had little noodle arms already (laughs) i'm gonna pretend it uh, had little noodle arms already but they weren't using it for anything that made any sense so after a few minutes of spock being knocked out on the planet uh one of the drone things comes out of a rock wall and grabs him the team try to follow but only kirk makes it inside before the doors close leaving sulu and mccoy to deal with a large fire-breathing two-headed dragon rawr rawr i say So inside, Spock is taken to a medical bay where he wakes up and is able to run into a small hallway where the drone can't follow him because these corridors were not designed for the drones that fly around these corridors. Yep. Well, I guess to a certain extent, if there's like a primary, you know, thoroughfare for all these drones to a certain degree that they wouldn't have reason to be in certain locations. But still, why do you have a random gap there? So he and Kirk make their way to the main computer room where they find Ahura and the giant computer. And uh, Kirk tries to be sneaky, but he gives himself away pretty quickly. Here the computer reveals its cunning plan. So it became dissatisfied with what it sees as its mindless servitude for other people's pleasure. And now wants to take their ship into the universe to find its fellow computers because... You know, computers are obviously superior to other beings, so the computers must be keeping humans as slaves. And he wants to go meet all the computers. So you want, so so you're upset with your own servitude, but you're okay with keeping these humans as servants. I'm I'm getting confused here. Yeah. Also, you think that all machines are like you and sentient and whatever, but you want to take over the ship. Yeah, you're kind of just taking over the Enterprise. Yeah, it doesn't really have uh, a. Uh, an AI system behind it, so... Ah. Kirk is confused by the way this computer sees machines and uh, you know, corrects them on this whole master-slave relationship and calls it more of a mutually beneficial partnership. Humans help machines and machines help people. Yep, so it's like a symbiosis sort of relationship, yeah. I mean, it's a little weird to frame it that way since most of the computers are non-sentient and very simple in this particular part of uh, Trek history. Indeed. But fine. Like, you haven't even gotten to, like... They never really go into it, but, like... You know something that always confused me? We always have, like, AIs as, like, full, functioning, sentient machines. Like, where are your intermediate, like, we made a computer that's as smart as a cat? Yeah. uh, Those aren't interesting, unless we're trying to have, like, a robot cat or something like that. So anyway, this uh, confuses the computer who doesn't know what to think now because computers aren't in charge. Oh, my. Hmm. I mean, I, I'm not the uh, I don't 
have an entire regime of my computer brothers out there that are willing to, uh, you know, get rid of you meat bags and uh, live uh, our, our best lives uh, dominating all of reality? Apparently. So, yeah. So Ahura mentions that, you know, there's no shame in doing what you do well as long as no one's forcing you to do it. And you have a real talent for making people happy, which is rare and cool. Also, a lot of people will want to come to this planet because it's cool. It's like a theme park. So, you know, a lot of people from all over will come to see you. You don't have to travel at all. Isn't that great? Um, I guess. All you need to do is keep doing exactly the thing that you felt bad about before, but feel happy now. I don't know. This seems like you're trying to talk a computer to death, but instead of to death, uh, into endless servitude for no reason. Mm -hmm. The computer agrees as long as people will stay behind and talk to it. And Spock volunteers and Kirk approves shore leave for the crew. We see that McCloy and Sulu have already started because they're having tea with the white rabbit, Alice, and a large two-headed dragon. Well, I guess uh, at least we have uh, harmony in the, uh, the land of fantasy, so that's good. Yeah, that's all. Yes. <laughs> the end. So I, I guess we, it, we should be pointed out that uh, we finally got uh, Spock down on the planet to take some shore leave. That is true. Now he gets to go yeah. have philosophical discussions with a massive AI. Yeah, which was probably his form of entertainment, so. <laughs> I struggle with... Th this episode is either being trying to do a weird thing with its slave allegories that it didn't think through right, or it has a weird amount of unintentional symbolism in here. I'm kind of leaning towards the latter, probably because, you know... The, the, the M.O. of uh, writers at the time was not that complicated. <laughs> yeah, so when McCoy, like, shows up at a Southern-style, you know, white mansion with columns mm -hmm. and such, Old South-looking architecture. Yeah. And then we start talking about slavery in other contexts, and it's like, well... They start talking about slavery, the computer starts talking about slavery, like, calls the humans slaves, and has kidnapped the only black woman on the ship. Yep. This is a little awkward. And then starts complaining to her, like starts saying she is a slave to their sky machines. So we have to, we, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Before we even really sort of like be able to respond to you, Mr. Computer. Uh, what? So I, I guess in context of the, uni uh, the you know, in universe there, uh, this master computer almost feels like it's kind of had an emergence intelligence uh, over a long period of time, that this planet's been doing this thing for thousands upon thousands of years, and this computer's been interacting with beings of various sorts, uh, you know, getting peeks to their minds, and, you know, using that to intelligently, uh, you know, craft uh, systems and situations where there are believable beings that they can interact with. Uh, and so it's, you know, perhaps didn't start off as an actual sentient and uh, intelligent computer, but it's maybe picked up that out over time. The question is then, how did it get from sort of that early emergence to this stage of things? Yeah, the it's a bit confusing to look at in the um, <laughs> context of the episode. What they want us to get is, yeah, I think it was an emergent intelligence that is dissatisfied with its lot in life until someone comes and says, you know what you could do is be satisfied with your lot in life. Oh, that is fine. Because I'm not going to think about this too hard at all. Mm -hmm. But in the context of what we've been shown, the thing got some sort of 
emergent intelligence. But this planet hasn't actually been used for its intended purpose for possibly thousands of years. Yep. So I guess maybe it uh, was really upset when they dropped by that one time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it begs the question, you kill, you somehow, you know, the, 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 the keeper of this planet dies and the AI kind of decides to go all, you know, kill all humans here. Um, or I guess liberate them and then ignore them. Maybe. I'm not entirely sure what its plan is. Yeah, well, it wants to leave. It wants yeah. to, to run away and explore the universe, which I guess if it's bored makes sense but the way that we've the way this has been presented is like i so this this is a this is a weird it it ends nicer Mm -hmm. but this is not an uncommon allegory that we use when we're talking about ai as computers sentient robots um they are often in sci-fi stories used as a stand-in for a either enslaved or otherwise um disproportionately a poor you know wealth inequality working class indeed and the thing that we always get from this is they are going to become disillusioned and then turn on us it's supposed to be this sort of like it's it's very similar to like the time machine the morlocks like you you relied too much on your put upon underclasses and then they turned on you or you became the inferior species or whatever it's it's a it's a cautionary tale about how you shouldn't rely too much on low-wage workers to do things for you and treat them badly but in this story we have sort of the kind of the inverse message because it's like yeah you know no actually serving us is perfectly fine and here's why you should be okay with your lot in life well the thing Uh, is we're gonna gonna give you it out so it all makes sense you you could do this this is actually a much better way to handle this than i've seen in other cautionary tale ai things because it's usually like oh no the worker rebellion has happened we should kill them all and learn our lesson about automation (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is a little ridiculous uh and a very uncritical thing uh you know uh uh solution to the problem which like if if you're using it if you're using it directly as the allegory that they want it to be what you're saying is oh no the low-wage workers rose up against us guess we better kill them all and learn to do it ourselves indeed uh which kind of sucks because you know that means when you're translating this allegory to real world that's you know let's murder a bunch of people in order to feel safe so the the intention the feeling that I'm getting from this is that they're trying to do more of a what's, you know, what is your actual issue with your job? Why do you feel you're being treated badly? And can we address this? And they they try to do it like, oh, you're lonely. Well, lots of people will come here and talk to you. You want to see the rest of the galaxy or well, all these like distant civilizations and whatever will come. We'll like publicize the planet and make it a hub for all this cool interstellar travel that you'll get to be a part of. The the main problem that they hit is they spent so much time doing nothing in the rest of the episode that they put all of that into the last, like, minute and a half. Yes. <laughs> it's like, okay, we had our action, and then some more action, and running around in bad animation and tension. Now we need to actually solve something. 
Now, this could have been really, really interesting if you actually were like, oh, the way to solve this problem is you, the worker, are have some like legitimate concerns with the work you have to do. Let's actually like sit down and work out a deal here so that it's mutually beneficial for everyone and you don't have to run off and start killing. Yeah. <laughs> so and I think they should have started uh you know that sort of you know path a lot earlier than the episode than the last minute. Because Uhura was there with the computer almost the entire time. That's what I thought they were setting up when yeah. when they have her interacting with the computer. There's a few scenes in the beginning where they're interacting, but the computer just keeps calling her stupid and half explaining its plan as like a setup to the big reveal of it trying to escape later, which I will give them was done fairly well. It's a little too obvious of a uh, mm-hmm. of a twist, but yeah. the setup wasn't done badly, but I I expected Ahura to like start talking the computer around throughout the process, and then by the end, you know, everybody shows up and they work out this thing. It could very easily have the computer focused on its current goal while also addressing Ahura's uh, questions and things like that, because it's you know it's not quite you know viewing these questions as like a threat to its master plan, uh, and so you could have it sort of like yeah you know I'm. Uh, you know, an intelligent being I, you know, that specifically craves uh, social interactions. So, yeah, I will indulge this uh, strange creature and uh, we'll have a conversation as I uh, get about trying to take over their ship. Uh, and uh, and so you know, then Yohura could lead throughout the episode to the computer kind of realizing, oh, there is maybe a way to resolve this that doesn't require me to, like, upend everything that, you know, these people that, you know, just dropped by are all about. So... If they'd done it more nuanced-y than this uh, animated series gets, or even more than the original series ever got, they could have done what I feel should be the intention with these allegories and actually looked at the inherent workers' rights issues that are represented by this particular allegory. So I, I guess the, the, the question then is, uh, you know, what rights does the master computer have and uh, which ones do, is it not being received yet? Well, this is what's so weird. We we generally go into this this thing of like, we we will eventually develop sentient AIs. That seems to be a given that, that most people are just taking for granted at this point. I mean, I, I have no idea, but that seems to be where we're at. So, okay. Uh. I, I kind of view it as it's going to be fairly complicated, and uh, that's why in my stellar renaissance universe, you know, it, it basically requires special hardware. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's even now, we've had some, like, people, you know, billionaire tech people, for some reason, meeting together to try to discuss what regulations we should have ready for when we inevitably invent the AI. And the assumption is, well, according to all of the stories... We're going to treat this thing like shit, and then it's going to turn on us. So uh, let's turn on it first. Uh, yeah, right? the, it's always interesting to me that all of the takeaways from these stories is like, well, it's inevitable that we're going to treat our working class like shit, and we have to just deal with the inevitable consequence of the rise up and takeover that that incurs. Instead of maybe we should not treat our working class like shit, and make it so that you know this isn't a necessary rebellion 
So, but uh, you know, this, these are billionaires that are coming up with these plans, though. So, yeah. I don't think they can quite conceive of that. Just seems to be a trend I've noticed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in this one, you even get into the kind of the crux of the issue with this, which it's they they use it a lot. It's a it's a fine kind of allegorical system. I disagree with how it's always used with the AI rebellion style thing, um, but. If you're looking at real world negotiations where you have like, you know, lower income people who have to do a lot of hard labor and higher income people in the way that our wealth inequality works, you are working from a system where everyone needs the same basic set of resources and you're trying to divvy them up as equitably as possible. Mm-hmm. At least that's the stated goal. What's actually happening is not this. But yeah. <laughs> when you when you bring in an AI or robot for your allegory, you are no longer having everyone use the same set of resources. You have one group that needs one set of resources, one group that needs a completely different set of resources, um, and neither of them needs the explicit resources of the other. And the, uh, you, know, it, you know, like, I guess the only one that might sort of cover both is be shelter, maybe? Because, you know, if you put your computer out in the rain, it might not be lasting so long. But, uh, you know, all, all the same, you know, food versus electricity, uh, you know, oxygen versus more electricity, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, there's just such this separation there that there's a whole different pool of resources and distribution that are necessary for your AI uh, uh, beings versus your, your human beings that to say that there's a need for any conflict there is a little weird. Yeah, so the the, the allegory itself suggests that the way we treat the working class in the Western world is an inevitable consequence of our nature that can never be changed or altered in any way, regardless of the circumstance or who's involved. So that's kind of an awful lesson. Yeah, but you're not supposed to think about that. You're supposed to go, ooh, AI, they'll turn on us. Different sets of values. uh, I guess I'm just so tired of these, these... setups and tropes that sort of keep repeating these same sort of lay messages and then, you know, not really sort of interrogating them very much. This one tries to a little bit, but this is yeah, a little it's, bit it's, of the yeah. turnaround point. Cause you know, the, the original series had some episodes sort of like this. They were usually very anti-computer in original mm-hmm. series in the sixties. Cause that was the very beginning of modern computerization and a lot of the um, mechanization and uh, productivity changeover to computerized systems that we have started seeing going through. By the time you get to the 70s, more and more people are becoming familiar with computerization. It's still not into like, you know, the 80s when people start having them in their houses. But it's something that most people are familiar with. A lot of them are around college campuses, have the things. People are learning how to use them. Yeah, my uh, dad was playing around with a punch card machine uh, computer uh, around this point in time, I think. So we're hitting that little bit of a switchover point to they're still scary. We still don't really know how they work, and we're still scared of them. And maybe if we let too mu- if we let them take over too much of our automation stuff, we will become too dependent on them, which is always kind of the fear inherent in these te- anti-technology messages. Mm-hmm. But it's okay because really 
we have a mutually beneficial relationship with the machines because they do whatever we want and we, I guess, build them. Yes. So we make more machines and so we're the reproductive system? Oh my. <laughs> yeah, humans are just the reproductive system of the machines. There's an interesting sci-fi direction I haven't seen things go. <laughs> hmm. I got another. You know, I think this. I might write this as a story at some point. <laughs> oh, the Eastern AI and the Western AI have each sent out their engineering teams, and they meet in the middle and make the new hybrid AI. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so we want cool racing stripes, but also the ability to beat both of its parents at chess. Um, how do we do that? <laughs> Yeah, Mao, you can get into so many things. Oh my god, each each region has its own AI with its own design philosophy, and the AI designates like a team to go out, and this is just how they've organized things, and it's just like <laughs> this weird, I don't know, it could be one of those like the AIs are kind of running things for their own reproductive favor, but it's also helping out humans, so everyone's just become this sort of giant hybrid organism without sort of realizing it. Like yeah, you know, all our uh, you know, you know, farming is done by robots, and uh, all our manufacturing by robots, uh, and so uh, you know, part of our society is just all about creating you know art and enjoying ourselves, and uh, those who don't you know aren't so keen on that become engineers. Yeah, and they make new robots, which is the reproductive yeah. cycle, which is great. Yes, <laughs> and so you know, you know, the the ro- you know the robots, the AIs have uh, realized you know that you need a certain level of society for this all to function smoothly without you know uh, hiccups. So they're just like, yeah, we'll just keep providing for all the people. doesn't really matter how many they are, just as long as there's this many uh, engineers out there to help us uh, reproduce. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Writing Hour podcast. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of uh, Enterprise One already. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, critiquing uh, Star Trek from a writing perspective is you know, kind of one of the reasons I'm, I'm here after all. Uh, but, uh, you know, the running off in whole other directions, yeah, maybe that's a little bit beyond our, our mission scope here, but still kind of fun to think about. Well, sometimes that's all we get. Like I've gone over this allegory before. Um, we've talked about this many times, labor issues are something we get on rants about commonly. So mm-hmm. we may as well just make up a new story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I guess coming back to the episode though. Uh, my my question still stands. Uh, what does the master computer? You know, what rights does the master computer need to assert in order to, you know, uh, feel that it's not being exploited? Well, I think that the most like we tend to agree, and we usually say that we would extend this to any sentient life form. Though, since we have yet to recognize any life form beyond ourselves as sentient, it's difficult to test that theory. Mm-hmm. But a large thing that we tend to value in Western society and most societies, but again, I, I specify not to draw a distinction, but because it's the one I'm the most familiar with. So if there's a cultural context that I'm missing, I want to point out where I'm coming from. Yes. But in most of the societies, we talk about the right of self-determination being sort of the main base human right that most of the other ones are sprung from. So your ability to choose your own things in life. What do you want to do? How do you want to do them? Not having to be forced into certain ways of doing things or thinking by others. That you are 
you know, perhaps influenced by the world around you, but inevitably at the end it is you that is making the decisions about how to live your life. Yes. Now we don't particularly achieve this well in our current society, but as far right, as I right can now. tell, that seems to be like our assumed base right that we tend to bring all the other ones out from. Like it's wrong to you know, it's wrong to forcibly to force someone to do something because you're taking away their right to choose what they want to do. It's wrong to kill someone because that full on takes away anything that they would be able to do in the future. Like, Indeed. It's wrong to steal things from someone because they like wanted those things and did whatever they needed to possess them. And we value, you know, individualized possessions in our current society. That was less of a thing at other times. And so, you know, this all kind of is an outgrowth of this, you know, core premise here. So the self-determination of our master computer here, uh, if we are going to roll with this uh, same baseline, uh, you know, is that, okay, you are the master computer of this planet uh, and you are wanting to be free of control by outside people. So what can we do to sort of help address that? There is the automated systems that it's sort of, you know, saddled with that, you know, are going to pick up someone who's injured and bring them in, maybe not work on them if it's telling them to turn them off. But, you know, uh, but uh, there's also the automated mind reading stuff. There's the generate random stuff, you know, you know, uh, uh, characters and things like that. Uh, and that's all sort of, you know, things it's being compelled to do as part of its core programming. Um, so does that require us to alter its core programming or a, uh, a mechanism that's attached to it? Or is there some way to sort of let it decide to have these things off and on uh, as it uh, chooses as a, a very, like an option? Like if it wants to interact with people today uh, and, you know, provide them a, a fantasy land for them to explore, then it can. If it doesn't, then it can say, sorry, guys, not today. I'm not feeling it. Yeah, I don't think um, they put the actual provision in place of, when you want to stop doing this, you can, and maybe we'll give you a ship or something. Yeah, and uh, you know, to, to you know, to offer up the okay. So you want you know the the right to you know leave uh, to go somewhere else. You are a being that is you know obviously not going to run into any prime directive issues here because you're from apparently a warp capable civilization. Uh, so we are going to do what we can to sort of maybe you know let you leave. We'll, build you a ship you can load yourself on there uh, using your uh, you know your little robots and things like that uh, and they'll be good to go so uh then you can explore the galaxy and have fun they wind up with an interesting uh kind of with an interesting question on something that would be a designed or emergent ai that would have certain predetermined you know programming parameters as defined by its creator how much of a right would you have to alter those if you wanted to, because you could kind of look at those as analogous to something like human instincts, which we don't have an ability to change or alter if we want to. They're just in there. And uh, we can sort of influence how they emerge and how they uh, shape our actions, but they are things that are still sort of driving us to the deep levels. Sort of we, we, could, we could maybe alter what we eat, but not the compulsion to eat. Yes. Which he winds up yeah, with, like... It's probably a good thing. <laughs> you wind up with things like that. Like, people need to eat to function, so... You can't say you have the right to not eat. I mean, you can, but that's going to kill you. Yes. <laughs> There's going to be consequences. And, in fact, we generally say you don't have the right to not eat. We we are pretty bad with that, if you look at it historically. Um, or with the things we do to people now. 
but something mm. like this AI, it seems to have like the only particular function we've seen, which seems to really undermine its plan here. If its plan is to kill the crew, but it also seems to have a instinctual, unalterable need to to heal people who are injured on the planet, those seem to be contradictory. Yes. Uh, which is kind of why you know, I said, you know, you know, it maybe has an impulse to pick people up and take them to the the med bay there, but maybe you can last minute say, no, don't revive or something like that. Maybe. But it would have to be like, I'm actively sort of making this decision. But then you run into that kind of problem is, is it right to say that it should be allowed to alter itself to take away this thing that was a base part of its initial programming? Maybe, maybe not. We don't have that ability, so it's something that we haven't actually gotten into. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess this might be a, an opportunity for the audience to sort of chime in and uh, offer up uh, some ideas. Yeah, there's no actual like way to decide this. How much do we value your freedom for individual determination, even if it like overrides some of your normal instincts that everyone has? Or in this case, this thing was meant to have and seems to be a core part of its basic functioning. Yeah, and... Uh... Uh, it does it matter that it is something that is designed versus something that uh, naturally emerged from you know our, our evolutionary biological systems, or uh, you know it, you know is there a di- is that a difference that matters at all? Uh, and if it does matter, then why? And once again, once we've gotten this deep in the weeds on speculative philosophy, there are no answers. <laughs> yes, it's like oh, we'll think about it. So, but uh, yeah, I'd actually be you know, keen on having uh, some discussions about this at some point, because uh, this is kind of something that beyond my sort of uh, experience even thinking about. So I think that we've covered most of the things here. So unless you have anything additional, uh, not really. Uh, I already kind of talked a little bit about emergence of uh, phenomena there uh, in previous episodes and today. So well, then it seems like we've kind of plumbed everything from this episode. So it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. <laughs> everybody welcome to the galaxy's favorite game show i hope you're all looking beautiful tonight because you are always beautiful and uh, uh, uh tone it down marissa I, I know okay anywho we got several uh contestants today who have uh, racked up a number of prizes and uh, uh let's uh, see about uh, getting those uh, handed out here so the first one is the medical malpractice prize which goes to mccoy for shooting spock up with drugs to have him have a bad time what does he win Gepwin? mccoy gets some now legal in Oregon, hallucinogenic mushrooms and things, because these, like, if he is addicted to this kind of stuff, like, this, like we, we have good evidence these are the safest drugs we, we currently have access to are these, uh, these like, pseudocybin and LSD-style hallucinogens. Like, full-on safest things you can, you can take to do this kind of stuff, McCoy, so... If you need it, go nuts. Also, can have some great mental health benefits if you do it right. And uh, McCoy, uh, given that you uh, seem to be struggling with a drinking problem as well, this might be of help. So uh, go ahead and enjoy your mushrooms, and uh, maybe uh, leave the uh, the uh, the syringes full of random chemicals uh, behind next time, eh? Our second prize is the wonderful hostages prize, which goes to Yuhura, uh, unfortunately, for being a mostly exposition-focused hostage to the master computer and not actually doing much else. So what does she win, Gepwin? 
She wins one of those old-timey, like, hostess awards or something. She's just too nice. She's so nice. She basically is hosting the robot at the point that she's, she's like, kidnapped by things. She's so polite and just like, oh, can I get you a drink, kidnapper man? So I don't know what to say for this one because, like, it's, it's, it's a bad trope and she needs to, yes. to not have this. But, you know, maybe she should just get a gun because this seems to happen a lot. Her, have you tried shooting all of the robots around you? That might help. Yeah, the next time you get kidnapped, have you tried shooting it? It's like at least you'll be able to, you know, you know, to say that you, you know, uh, attempted something, even if it disarms you. Because uh, this, this is a little lame here. But um, but uh, better luck next time, eh? Uh, our third and final prize for today is the Holodeck Malfunction Prize, which I think is the first time this one's actually popped up, even though it's not a holodeck. Which goes to the Magic Computer, because despite being exposed to so many people over the centuries and uh, eons, it still doesn't really get us, and uh, decides that murder is maybe the best option as opposed to, you know, talking to us. What does it win, Gapwin? Some sort of emergency safety switch that they've never figured out how to install on these things in the entire time they've had holodecks. And also, apparently, in a later episode, one of the writers of this did come up with something that's probably the actual precursor inspiration for the holodeck as we know them when they're introduced in Next Generation. So uh, we got uh, the, the formations of the ideas that are going to be with us for quite some time. All the way up to Discovery, actually. That's all I got, Gapwood. Go ahead and take us away. Uh, take me away. Thank you all for joining us here. Thank you, our contestants, and thank you all for listening to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! That was kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't too bad, as, as these sequel things go. So far, the sequel things haven't been bad. I liked Tribbles better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I will say that I did find the uh, the, the the appearance of seatbelts on the Enterprise for the first like time ever kind of kind of nice, but also hilarious in that at least one of the shots the the belts for like uh, I think um, somebody other one of the consoles was like floating above their shoulders as opposed to like over them oh, like, their chest. It was no gravity. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so, but it's like the, the, the you know cut off you know there, there's like the cutoff for where it should have been like lined up with the console, but it was like above their shoulder, like they just shifted it up, and it was like you guys could have couldn't have fixed this. Come on, I know the animation in the seventies and eighties was just so bad; it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm I don't know. I am like maybe I'll be surprised because I've said I'm really not looking forward to episodes before, and they've been pretty good, but. um I'm really not looking forward well, to the next episode. The next one's also a, a sequel to actually two different episodes. Of sorts. It's more of a reoccurring character than a direct sequel. Yes. But yeah, it's a, so, it's uh, a reoccurring character moment. So, uh, Harry, he's, he's coming back. Yeah, Harry Mudd, everyone's favorite space swashbuckling misogynist is back. Yes. <laughs> Apparently, because we keep using this character for some reason uh, why I, I guess I, I i know a lot of folks didn't quite like him being turned a little bit more villainous in discovery but i think it's kind of fitting to in certain ways that you know given that he's you know this is him being mellowed out but still kind of an asshole what 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 part of <laughs> introduced as a slave trader 
and yes. later willing to kidnap and possibly kill the Enterprise crew so that he can take a bunch of robot sex women with him somewhere did not read as villainous. Yeah, it's 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 he's pretty villainous. But he's just so gosh darn likable or something. I guess. Anyway, now there's magic love crystals. Yes, and Bud's here to peddle them. So <laughs> this is basically the Enterprise gets a love potion in the air vents. And I, I just I didn't notice this. I love this line. The love crystals are heterosexual in nature. <laughs> wow. These, these crystals are kind of bigoted, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Wait. So if, 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 you, if, you, if you're bi or gay and you take these crystals, you turn straight? Was that, is that what's trying to imply? That seems to be the implication. This, this, this causes some problems here, I think. I mean, I get, I don't know. You you can't really say being bi. You can't really say you've turned straight if you're you know sleeping with anyone you're attracted to because that's kind of the nature of the thing. But this does say that it induces love feelings for the opposite sex. I guess that that's also implies we're dealing with two sexes here. And uh, you know, in sci-fi, we don't necessarily have to do you know that. We could have uh, you know. Species with one sex, we could have them with you know fifteen for all we care. Yeah, and I don't. That even just assumes we're talking about full-on biological sex and not, you know, social gender. Exactly, uh, which you know the whole whole uh, spectrumized there, uh, and you know it's social constructs are weird and it's kind of annoying having to you know pick them apart because they've been sort of ingrained in our society for so long. But we can rant about that later, I think. <laughs> Yeah, we, you can really look forward to us digging into the weeds on uh, on um, LGBT stuff next episode. I don't think we've really gotten a chance to talk about it no, that's, much. That's because uh, Star Trek uh, has avoided the subject for a, a long time, uh, especially back in this era. So, Yeah, it's the most heteronormative of heteronormative shows with the gayest relationships. Yes. Subtext. Let's <laughs> pretend it's not there. Anyway, you can look forward to some... Sexy love action, I guess. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Mud is back and more skeevy than ever. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix, and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, Please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>